let's be honest, for many industries in 2020, the outlook has been far from rosy. But here on The Chiefs, we prove that a positive attitude to the unfolding uncertainty and a strategy that rejects short-term fixes spells a brighter future. One industry that's held its own during these times is micromobility, above all, the humble bike. With public transport off the cards and an unusually long stretch of sun across Europe, this summer the bike business boomed like no other as repair shop queues and waiting lists stretched the length from Zurich to London. So how did one iconic British brand handle this rise in demand when supply chains were interrupted? And how can the industry increase production while keeping sustainable growth a top priority? On today's episode of The Chiefs, I'm joined by Will Butler-Adams of Brompton Bikes from his home in Marlow, just west of their London factory. We talk about everything from the challenges of modern engineering to the future of our cities and how we move around them. Well, we had the luxury of doing a pre-interview, which has actually really not been the case uh, with with much of this series. But you and I had a, a very good chat in the middle of, of summer, and it's it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to, to catch up today. When, when we spoke last time, we were dealing with a number of topics, topics that were, of course, you know, really front and center for anyone running a business, not just manufacturing, not just a company, uh, which is is focused on mobility and many of the other topics that, that are core to you, but also the fundamentals of, of just, of course, motivating teams and getting people up and up and running. So as we're hurtling towards the end of, of the year, if you, if you look back uh, over the last six or, or, or seven months, uh, Maybe we could look at a bit of a of a report card, uh, or maybe maybe it's not a report card. Maybe it's more of sort of a a, a a doctor's assessment as as how you saw your business going into this. Obviously, a globally respected business, um, of course, known better in, in some markets that, than others, but also one which is it fair to say has also come of its time because of where we've been right now. Yes. So I mean, we were doing very well. We've seen growth. Over the last 15 years, at about 15% a year compound, that is fantastic. We had our business plan, we'd signed it off, you know, it was all coming to the end of one year, starting the next year. We sell in 47 countries around the world, we had a live office in Shanghai. So when the coronavirus started, we were very aware of it, both from a team perspective, how we were dealing with our staff in China, but also we have a few stores there, so they were also affected. That gave us a bit of a heads up. And we initially slightly thought that we were heading for a sort of MERS-SARS, it's an Asia problem and it's not going to affect us. Then it arrived in Italy. And even then we sort of thought, well, you know, it'll take a while. It'll creep its way around Europe. And as one place locks down, the other one unlocks and it'll all be fine. We were not prepared for the speed at which it rippled through Europe. And whereas in Asia we had had interruption of our supply chain, but then we still had many containers on the sea. So actually, we were able to manage it. In Europe, there was a very, very quick supply chain hit where companies just stopped making. 400 of our stores in Europe closed down within several weeks. And, you know, it was a pretty full on crisis. And I think leadership is really tested in a crisis. And what we didn't do, which I think is probably with hindsight looking back, and it was probably the right thing. I'm sure we didn't do it right, but the principle was right. What we didn't do is just go to the extreme and go to the, oh my God, we've got a disaster, close everything down, drama, 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 we're all going to die, headless chickens, it's a disaster. What we did was 
And maybe it was help because we'd seen it coming from, from China, but we stopped and we thought and we really tried to look at the best evidence that was presenting itself to us. We looked at our staff, our situation, our market, and we took a decision very, very early on as a team that actually, once we'd removed all the vulnerable people in our organisation, the biggest risk to our staff and to our company was going bust. And actually, so therefore, we wanted to keep going. And we were determined to keep going until we were told by government or by any organisation that we had to legally close. And that was a really important step. And it meant that we did everything to keep running. It, we, we dropped 40% in output. We had to stop making some bits because we ran out of parts. But we hired vans. We drove to suppliers. We picked up bits. We bit, pit, picked up bits of machinery. We then worked out how we could help the NHS. We got bikes to the NHS. But that, more than anything, brought us together, gave us a common goal. And we worked as a team to get through it. Out the back of that, we've seen this tremendous transformation of how people want to live in cities. But the biggest takeaway was leadership at the toughest time. Let's come back to the transformation of, of getting from A to B uh, in cities in a moment. Was there also a moment where, where you woke up and thought, not, okay, we're going to profit from all of this, but there is there is an incredible change moment. And I, I can think about in in Zurich, of course, it was, it was early spring here, and I went to the bike shop because I wanted to get some bikes tuned up. And they almost laughed and they said, well, we have... Uh, yeah, a five, six week service time. I mean, you would you would never get that in any auto shop. I mean, they were even saying people were having to go all over, you know, 100 kilometers away, which is really, really across the country in Switzerland, to, to go and find capacity to get a new tire put on, uh, get a new chain put on. I mean, it, and, and this is then a story that we heard all over Europe because suddenly, because of the challenges of, of public transport, and of course we had a great spring in, in Europe and, and many parts of the Northern Hemisphere, it was a time to get on bikes. D did you see that moment then coming? Because as you said, you went from this having to ramp down, never never completely shutting down, and then boom, um, at retail, what happened almost everywhere. What happens is when you hit a crisis, you get very short term and you're taking things day to day. So you're slightly not looking above the next day because you're just getting through the next day. So funnily enough, we didn't really see it coming. What gave us a bit of an inkling that something was coming was our staff. And at the time we, we, we had about, well, we have about 450 staff, maybe 200 of them were working from home or self-isolating for various reasons. And then we had about 250 still making bikes. You, you can't weld at home. And um, but the funny thing was staff that we've known for years and we've tried to get them on bikes. No, 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 no. They were never going to go bike. Suddenly, these same people were saying, but have you got a bike I can borrow? Can I borrow a bike? It was like, yeah, yeah, three or four staff on a bike. No, no, another eight want a bike. Oh, no, there's another 15 staff. And then we got approached by the NHS. They wanted bikes. So we lent them some of our bike hire fleet and we ran out at 200 bikes. And then we did a crowdfunder page, raised 320 grand and got another 800 bikes into the NHS. But the NHS is interesting. Our staff are interesting because... You know, these are just normal people who haven't cycled since they were 16, who probably we've been targeting for a long time and got nowhere with. And suddenly they were coming to us in droves and we were still fighting for survival. But we started to think, well, hold on, if our staff who we know suddenly want to get on our bike, if people from the NHS, doesn't matter whether they're support staff, whether they're nurses, doctors, surgeons, all wanting to suddenly get on bikes. Well, if you extrapolate that across our markets... This could be quite massive. And that then, we started to think, well, well, how might we be able to deal with this? Remembering we still had a lot of people self-isolated 
And so we weren't able to produce max capacity. But certainly what we did do pretty early on, having you know, turn down our supply chain, and you can't turn your supply chain up and down like a switch. It, it, there's a run down and a run up. We started turning it up, but even what we turned up wasn't enough. And we were quite lucky, ironically, to have put a couple of million quid into Brexit stock, of all things. Preparing for Brexit, we, we built up a, a buffer stock. And that buffer stock allowed us to build more bikes when actually the supply chain wasn't there ready for us at that time. Let's focus on, on the city or having to get from a village uh, into an, an urban core or, or and, and, of course, making the, the commute home as well. You were very much part of it. Uh, Brompton has been, you know, center in so many ways to, yes, you know, maybe you, you cycle in, but of course, then you can take your bike you know, back on public transport with you, or you can whack it in the back of, uh, of a friend's, uh, the boot of their car, etc. How, how, how have you witnessed things unfolding now? Because on, on one side, you said there was this, this, this boom that we saw happening at retail for you, you had this, this Brexit uh, supply or, or, or standby stock. Uh, but then where have we been, I guess, now we're probably moving into August, September territory. I mean, where, where, where are things standing as we sort of moved out of that summer period? So we, um, we have been able to grow our output by about 25% year on year, which in the context of having gone through coronavirus is pretty awesome for manufacturing. It's quite a tall order to do that. The actual demand is probably more like another 30 to 40% on top of that. And it could be more because effectively we've, we, we are still making bikes, but we've stopped taking orders, if that makes sense. And what is interesting is we can't just suddenly double our workforce. There's a lot of skill, knowledge, training that goes in, there's equipment, and obviously the supply chain. So there's a limit to how fast we can grow our business. But where there is a pinch point is the company in the world, and there aren't many of them, that makes bike chains. The company in the world that makes rims, that makes brake levers, brake calipers, bike saddles. Those are very, very bike-specific components. And guess what? Giant, specialised, Trek, they all want more, 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 more. And actually the suppliers to the bike companies themselves can't make enough parts. And you can't just double it, treble it overnight. There's a limit to what kit they have. So we're in this period at the moment where um, I don't actually think we could go much faster than we're doing now. But even if we could, our suppliers can't. So we're probably topping out at about 25 to 30% in terms of what's really possible. Over this next six to nine months, I think we will see that supply chain beginning to be able to respond. But it's not something that can happen one month to the next. And obviously, we are busy. We're trying to recruit 195 people in the next nine months. And that's on top of a workforce of 450 so it's taken us 45 years as a company to get to 450 staff. And we're going to go up to, you know, knocking on the door of 650 in 12 months. So it's pretty unprecedented uh, growth and, and managing that and engaging new staff and communicating at a time when people are quite fearful. It is flipping full on. I want to go on on maybe just a, a parallel track because you've opened up an opportunity uh, right here when you talk about the, the need to to hire. And I imagine you're probably talking about not just not just one market. It's I imagine it's, it's probably uh, upping staff in in China. It's it's going to be upping staff in the UK as well. We we went into this and and 
you know, and we've been through, listen, you know, at a decade of, you know, the focus in, in many developed uh, countries, this focus on being service economies. Uh, and we're going to be, you know, offshoring, uh, of course, more jobs, you know, manufacturing is, is, is belching and it's dirty and no one wants to do it. And, and yet suddenly we've seen this massive rethink, as you said, the challenge of supply chain. I mean, so many countries thinking, well, actually, we don't want to have things at sea ever again for four months. There are some essential things we do need to be making uh, closer to home. So as someone who's in the gritty business where there is grease and, and metal um, involved, William, do you think government, and I guess you could probably speak best to, to UK government, are, are we set up in a place right now to be able to switch channels, to be able to say, look, at, we need to have a labor force who, who does want to get dirty, who is interested. Do we have the the apprenticeship program in place to encourage for you to, to look at I mean, you've got to go up. At, that's an enormous amount of staff that you need to bring on. I'm wondering, where do you find them and how do you train them? So the first thing is, Half the problem with manufacturing is people describe it as you've described, dark satanic meals, boiler suits, grubby grease. It just isn't that. You know, it is high tech. It is using very, very high tech machinery. It is multi-talented, highly skilled individuals. But if you come to the factory, there's nothing dirty about it. It's white, it's immaculate, it's clean, it's airy, it's interesting. It's a hell of a lot more interesting than bankers sitting in offices moving numbers from one imaginary screen to the next and you're creating something that adds value to people's lives. But interestingly, from the 195 staff that we're taking on, probably 45 of those are directly involved in the shop floor. The other 150 are involved in customer service, design, IT, programming, retail, marketing. It is so rich. And when you're dealing in a global business, you know, we're in 19 countries, we need 19 sets of customer service that are fluent with a bike and fluent in a language. We need a website and it needs to be updated. And it is relevant to the people living in, in, in the country. We need a sales team nurturing, training and developing our routes to market. So the business is way more than the manufacturing element. That is the foundation. And, and, and that has got to be rock solid. But actually, in time, the edifice that we build on the foundation of the bike will be way bigger than the foundation itself. Uh, but obviously, you can never lose sight of how important the foundation is, because if you get that wrong, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Let me ask you about markets, and maybe we should start in, in cities. Is there a type of city uh, that works best for Brompton? Because I'm standing in the heart of Zurich right now, ground floor studio, and I'm looking out at a very busy street, and there are a lot of bikes going past, and, and I don't see any Bromptons. Now, is that because Zurich, for example, could be a distribution thing, or it's in a different, literally in a different cycle of, of its relationship with bikes? It's certainly, you know, if you compare it to many other cities, some will complain it's not so bikeable, some will say it's, it's absolutely fine. Of course, you're a UK-based company, but I, I see in some markets, yes, I, I see Brompton. Does that just come down to pure sales force and, and their markets that, that you've entered in? Or is there a certain type of city that, that functions better than others for you? So we are making, the moment, 70,000 bikes a year. We're selling into an urbanized global population of knocking on the door of 4 billion. And actually, I've spent nearly 20 years traveling around cities. I've been whizzing through Jakarta, Bangkok, Shanghai, Beijing. I mean, you know, Tokyo, you name it. I've nearly been there on my bike. The similarities of cities are far greater than their differences. And actually, most of our customers around the world are not commuting into a city, they live in a city. 
They live in a flat. They go to the bar. They go to work. They don't want to leave their bike outside because it might get stolen. They might then decide they want to, you know, jump on a tube or get on the train and go and visit some friends. It's super flexible, depending on what you might want or what you might need. And I think our challenge is, you know, when I joined, there were 27 of us. There's a limit to how fast you can grow a business. And we need to communicate and engage and, and explain to people the value of this product. So I think it's relevant. It may be more relevant in certain cities than others. Obviously, in Asia, which is a big market for us, it's a premium product. There is a price barrier for some people. And it's used differently. In Asia, the bike is more of a recreational tool and it's a, it's a very much a community tool, whereas in Europe, it's much more of a practical tool. But in terms of the opportunity, it's as fast as we can unlock it. The opportunity is there. And, and if you then think that really the bike is no longer a bike, the bike has become an e-bike and you know they're selling way more e-bikes in Germany and Northern Europe than they are pedal bikes. And then you think, well, do I want to leave my e-bike on the street and it might get stolen. The, the historic sort of buy a bike for 50 euros in the Netherlands and it doesn't matter if it gets nicked because someone, you just scoof another one out of the canal. That is changing because bikes are becoming tech orientated. They're having clever technology inside them and they're becoming higher value. So I think, I think we're very relevant in many places. And, you know, as ever in business, you'll start with the places where you think you have the biggest opportunity because you can't do everything all at once and you'll work your way down. And so hence we are focusing on New York, Barcelona, Paris and, and cities where there is the greatest opportunity. And as we develop those markets, so we'll, we'll move to a wider set of cities. Tell me how you see this this broad market uh, unfolding. So people will will talk about the bump, the kink in the road that that a company like Tesla did in, in its in its sector. You know, no advertising, straight to consumer. It's it's its own showrooms, et cetera, et cetera. So you know that's one player and maybe gets almost too much airtime. We can obviously look at, you know, Honda saying they want to accelerate much faster in terms of just getting away from any type of fossil fuel use as well. So making a bit of a name for themselves. If you look at this bike market, can we look at it as one market? I mean, you've identified that Asia is a little bit different, but where are we going? Is, is it going to be a world where we're going to see five or six premium players when we go down a high street soon, all with their own direct to consumer? Uh, is the bike going to come to my house, you know, fully assembled? I don't have to worry about it. But what does the market look like to you? So, first of all, for 50 years, as urbanites, we've sort of slept well, walked into an environment that isn't making us happy. No one voted to have cars and poor air quality and stress and tunnels under the ground in our cities. It sort of just happened and we just accepted it. And it's a bit like having a an animal in the zoo. You know, if you ask the animal when it's in the zoo, which, where it was born, are you happy in the zoo? It says yes. Then you let it out of the zoo, it roams around in the countryside. And then you ask it to go back in its cage and it goes, not on your nelly. And that's sort of what happened in lockdown. The, the billions, hundreds of millions of people living in cities suddenly discovered that the city could be different. It could be with cleaner air. It could be not with these big square boxes that mow down children um, whizzing around. It feels safer and, and more designed around the human being. And I think that is not a blip. I think that is a real enlightenment for how we want our cities to be for those that live there. And I think governors are, rec- are picking up on that and changing the infrastructure to support it. So it's no good for Honda and Tesla just to turn the metal box from being one that pumps out fuel to being one that doesn't it still weighs a ton and a half and goes 30 miles an hour and I wouldn't want my four-year-old anywhere near it so that I think cities it's about micro mobility and 
I think the opportunity for micromobility, whether they're scooters, bicycles, e-bikes, um, cargo bikes, it's massive. And then how you reach the customer, it is definitely for quite some time omnichannel. There will be those that are perfectly happy to have someone drop it off at their home and assemble it for them. There'll be others that still want to go to a shop. There'll be others that can repair it themselves. There'll be others that want somebody else to repair it. And we'll have mobile and we'll have static and we'll have third party specialists and we'll have direct to the manufacturer. All of the above, because we have different economies in different stages. We have different consumers, of different historic experiences and they're not all millennials and some of them are still used to going to a store. So for the next 10 or so years, it is shifting, but it's shifting to pure omnichannel, giving the consumer what they want for their personal circumstance. It sounds to me, and I think a lot of people are probably going to be listening to this uh, over the holidays. They are listening to this over the holidays. Um, William, you've thrown down the gauntlet. I think maybe someone who's rethinking their life, that you know, they, they maybe haven't enjoyed working for a big insurer so much. Uh, it sounds to me like you're, you're thinking there's there's an opportunity with a lot of empty shop space around the world. If you could go and do a really outstanding bike store with great service, great range, aftercare, all of those things, it might not be a bad business idea. Definitely. And, and you know, there's room in this market. I mean, the, 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 the inspiration I take, which is not directly relevant but it does spur me on. There was a Brit in the UK who came up with a magical way of sucking up dust. And if you've ever sucked up dust at home, it's a fairly boring job, um, but it has to be done with what was a Hoover and he created the Dyson. And if he could make a business that's turning over, knocking on the door of two billion and kicking out, I mean, the, the, the profitability is off the chart, doing something that's fit, pretty boring, but quite relevant to a lot of us, I think the micromobility, the urban living, it's how do you transport yourself across the city. There is an opportunity for a billion plus business in pretty short time who takes that sector and really delivers outstanding products that are useful and relevant to our consumer. Because the really brilliant products are brilliant because they're so useful, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. And so much of the stuff we're peddled through the papers, through the magazines, through the telly is basically overrated dross. And it's we don't need it. The, the environment can't sustain us having endless consumerism for things we never really needed. We need less stuff, but really, really good stuff. And if we as Brompton can contribute to that and deliver useful products, then we, we stand a chance of being one of those businesses that really impacts how people live in cities. How often does your email inbox ping or do you receive a package or someone soliciting uh, your office over the phone for extensions of the brand? Because this is one of the amazing things I think that you've you've been around for a while. You haven't been around just for, for a decade. And yet I don't see people walking down the street with Brompton backpacks. I don't see this proliferation of just stuff, dross, as you've said. So many companies fall for the temptation of let's just extend the brand like crazy. And you're perfectly positioned to do it. I mean, I'm sure there are many people, many moms and dads who who love the product and think, well, goodness, if they made a collapsible bunk bed as well, uh, you know, this would also be good. Why have you chosen to really, really stick uh, to your core business at a time when so many are tempted 
tempted to expand and enjoy the and reap the rewards that go with that. Occasionally, sometimes we know it completely goes the other direction. I think we we have had few debates over the years, and my chairman, in fact, my old chairman, was was convinced we should be doing exactly that. You know, collapsible, collapsible baby buggies. Um, and I, all my answer has been, and still is, is when we've done our best with the the sector that we are knowledgeable about, passionate about, when we've really fulfilled its potential, then we'll move on to the next thing. But we are so far from even scratching the surface. You know, if you're close to your business, we're permanently not good enough everywhere. I'm permanently dissatisfied. There are things that should be better. Oh my gosh, we could be doing this better. There's still stuff on the bike I want to make better. There's, there's oodles of things. And we have hardly started. I mean, I'm 18 years in and I feel we're still in our shorts at kindergarten. I mean, we haven't even got this thing going. And, and there's so much opportunity with technology, with, with, with electronics, with battery technology, with material science to deliver better and better and more useful products. And what we mustn't do is get caught up in the sort of average stuff. We have lots of people making stuff for our customers, but the really difficult stuff is where the value is, the stuff that's the higher risk that requires real thought and investment. And that's our job. Our job is to do that. People can make backpacks and they can stick our logo on T-shirts if they want, and, and we can't manage it all over the world. They pop up all over the place. But where we really want to add value is creating useful, valuable, well-made, long-lasting products. Before we go, you have to tease us. It's a year end. Anything that is about to be announced, something you'd like to tell us? You know, we, we love a scoop in our business. What can we expect to see? And and I'll, I'll let you get away with you know something which might be in the public domain, but maybe all the bike freaks know about what you're launching, but maybe the lay listener doesn't. Tease us a little. What's, what's on the horizon? So we are obsessed with weight because unlike um, pretty much every other bike, we fold our thing up and we carry it. And the keen cyclist is obsessed with the weight of their bike, but they forget that when they get on the bike, they put their body and their bottom on the saddle. So they think they're saving one kilo in 10, 10%, but when they weigh 90 kilos, they're saving 1%. It wasn't worth bothering. But for a Brompton, when you fold it and you carry it on the end of your arm, a one kilo shift in weight is really, really delightful. And it will make the whole experience nicer. So all I can tell you is, we are obsessed with weight and we ain't finished yet in finding clever ways, optimizing design, material science to deliver a lighter, just as strong, just as capable, just as stiff bike. And it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And as technology evolves, there are some super cool things that we're doing, which hopefully will become real products. I mean, I've been whizzing around on prototypes for the last two years in one particular area, and I'm so excited about it, but it, we're not quite there. We're nearly there. I'm Tyler Brulé, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. My thanks to Will Butler-Adams for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And if you'd like to explore our extensive back catalogue of interviews with industry leaders from cosmetics to aviation, financial services to hospitality, head to monocle.com forward slash radio. The Chiefs is produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Steph Chungu. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.